The scripture reading today is from Paul's first letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 1 through 13. Brothers and sisters, I couldn't talk to you like spiritual people, but like unspiritual people, like babies in Christ. I give you milk to drink instead of solid food because you weren't up to it yet. Now you're still not up to it because you're still unspiritual. When jealousy and fighting exist between you, aren't you unspiritual and living by human standards? When someone says, I belong to Paul, and someone else says, I belong to Apollos, aren't you acting like people without the spirit? After all, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants who helped you to believe. Each one had a role given to them by the Lord. I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. Because of this, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but the only one who is anything is God who make it grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together, but each one will receive their own reward for their own labor. We are God's co-workers, and you're God's field, God's building. I laid a foundation like a wise master builder according to God's grace that was given to me, but someone else is building on top of it. Each person needs to pay attention to the way they build on it. No one can lay any other foundation beside the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So whether someone builds on top of the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, grass, or hay, each one's work will be clearly shown. The day will make it clear because it will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. My name is Emily McGinley, uh, and if you talk about me, you can use the pronouns she, her, and hers. It is good to worship with you this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the gift that it is to come together on this day, to be reminded that you are among us, no matter the temperature, no matter our circumstances, no matter what may have happened coming into the building this morning and what might happen as we leave this space. We thank you that you are with us through it all. And we ask that as we um, settle ourselves into this moment to reflect on what it is that you might say to us today, that you would clear away all the things that clutter our hearts and our minds so that we might be fully present to receive um, your instruction, to be transformed, to be challenged, and invited to your greater work in this world. 
speak through me because of me and also a little bit in spite of me too, um, that your word might be here, heard clearly and that we all might leave this space a little bit fuller in our hearts and transformed in our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In our passage for today, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to this church community he planted in the city of Corinth. And he begins in this standard way, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he moves pretty quickly into voicing his disapproval for all the ways that they have been squabbling amongst themselves. Chloe's people gave me some information about you, that you've been fighting with each other, he writes, at which point everyone is serving Chloe some heavy side eye. <laughs> I encourage you, agree with each other and don't be divided into rival groups. <clears throat> but it's not just reports from Chloe the snitch. These folks have written to him with some kind of criticism about the ideas that he's been sharing with them, saying basically that he isn't giving them enough like highbrow teachings. We live in a cosmopolitan city, they're saying. We've heard all the great minds come through and share their sophisticated and intellectually stimulating thoughts. Give us something that we can really sink our teeth into here instead of these basic teachings. And so, at first, you think that's what Paul's about to give them. After his initial greetings he, and a nod to their church drama, he moves into this whole exposition about the difference between uh, worldly wisdom and the wisdom of the cross. And these Corinthians, most of them who are upwardly mobile and eager to demonstrate how their refined worldly outlook sets them apart from all the rest, they are leaning in so hard that their obscure craft cocktails are about to spill over. And now, as someone who is a complete sucker for craft cocktails, I say this with all love and affection. But so they're leaning in, ready to soak in all the elevated thinking, and Paul gives it to them. What we say is wisdom isn't a wisdom that comes from the present day or today's leaders. No, God's wisdom has been hidden as a secret, determined in advance before time began for our glory. Yes, yes, they say as they stir with their tiny little cocktail forks. So true. But then you flip the page, and at the top of chapter 3, Paul is ready with a clapback that none of them were prepared for. Now, you all think you're grown, but all I see are folks struggling with the fundamentals. You think I'm basic? Well, maybe I'm basic because you haven't even proved yourselves capable of the bare minimum, at which point everyone is starting to feel a little woozy, and it isn't the cocktails. And it's not that Paul is trying to be mean. He's no stranger to the, to the faces that, that he's imagining in his mind. He's not um, unfamiliar with their struggles, their hopes, and their histories that have shaped their, their lives. He knows their testimony about who Jesus has been among them, what the Spirit has done within them. He knows their many gifts and graces. He knows they're capable of so much more than flexing and standing for their theological heartthrob. And so Paul says what generations of church aunties after him have long since echoed. Y'all are so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. These people who know how to grind and hustle to get what they need um, and what they came for have devolved into practices, politics, and cultures that undermine the work that God is ready to do through them. They've given themselves over to tendencies of tribalism and fetishizations of intellect, constantly jockeying for power and standing. He knows they know how to build things, but all they're doing is tearing each other down. This is the world they live in. Paul understands. 
It's part of their workplaces, their city politics, and even their friendships. They have had to become conversant in this if they wanted to survive. And so maybe it's almost as if they can't help themselves. But they can, and Paul knows it. Throughout his letters, Paul uses this term, oikodomain, which basically is about building a house, and more specifically, the house in which God dwells. And his message is that where God shows up is not a building so much as the thing that God's people are constructing when they live in the way of Jesus together. God may have poured a foundation in Jesus and the leaders have built scaffolding, but it is the people, the community, who make it a home. And Paul is careful to point out that the quality of the contribution that they make will be revealed. And this isn't so much to shame folks or threaten them as much as it is to put them on notice that what you contribute matters. This certainly has been true here at City Church. 25 years is a long enough time to make some big mistakes and also do some pretty good work. Now, a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to meet up with one of our City Churchers here, Adrian Tertinati, one of the most earnest and theologically nerdy people I have met so far here at City Church. And that is really saying something. Ask Elliot about his theology of quarks or something like that. The first thing Adrian did when I met up with him was hand me a bottle of wine called Moral Compass and a 27-page paper he wrote on his theology, for fun, outlining his theology of freedom in the New Testament. My only regret is not having met him earlier in this freedom sermon series that we were preaching through in September because I actually learned quite a bit (laughs) in that paper and it would have helped me in my sermon prep. And yet, even with an introduction like that, I did not appreciate what a tremendously deep-thinking and dedicated person Adrian is until after our conversation together. I also came to understand what a powerful role this community has played in his life. And it's a story that we should all know, not only because it helps us understand more fully how God has dwelt in this house, which we have built, but also to grasp how that has made an impact on our city. And so um, I invite you to please join me in, in welcoming Adrian. Come on up. I'm going to have you come up this way, actually. So let's... So, Adrian, thank you um, for taking the hot seat. You weren't scared um, after uh, Hillary. Came up here, so I have to, of course, begin with my standard question, which is, um, "What is your worst sin?" Um, so that way we can all uh, feel better about. Uh, no, I'm obviously very intimidated, uh, as Joshua mentioned, uh, to be in front of all the spiritual elite here at City Church. Okay, well, um, humility then is is not a, not the sin that you you have committed, um, and we're glad with you to have you with us. Um, so. So you lead this organization that uh, I got to learn about when I met up with you. We met at one of the offices of of this organization in the Western edition, Mm -hmm. right? Still learning the neighborhoods. Um, So tell us about it. Uh, Yeah, so I I lead an org called Open Door Legal. And, um, you know, very basically, I've been um, really inspired to address poverty in America since a very early age. And about um, 15 years ago, I heard a sort of a very specific call from God to go into legal aid. So I went to law school and um, started Open Door Legal um, two weeks after I got my license. Um, 
you know, to be honest with you, it was much more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Um, um, you know, I think I talked to probably about 50 experts, um, and they all told me it was a bad idea, it would never work, we would never get funding. And um, I think probably about the first 100 people I asked to support it, probably 98 said no. Um, and, um, um, uh, but, you know, I sort of had this goal of, of creating the country's first system of universal access to civil legal representation. So I was able to recruit a friend from law school to co-found it with me. Um, we started in 2013, so almost 10 years ago. And um, you know, in our first year, we kind of made minimum wage. We represented uh, over 100 families in the Bayview. And at our current scale, um, we're at about a $6 million per year budget with uh, over 50 staff, and have represented over 3,000 families. Uh, so, so that's just under 10 years, mm -hmm. right? That's phenomenal. Um, I, one of the things that you mentioned to me that I really love because I feel like this is a move that I, I would make is that um, you deliberately took internships during law school that would render you unemployable. Oh, yeah, no. So I deliberately <laughs> didn't take internships oh. in law school oh, okay. to render myself unemployable so that I would, uh, you know, do the thing that I had set out to do. <laughs> I love that. That's like, I, I feel like that's a very appropriate amount of, like, reformed self-suspicion <laughs> around, like, I know that I would be, like, potentially lured into something else, and so you just kind of, like, pay oh, yeah. yourself. Oh, yeah. No, it would be a disaster, right, if I got a job offer. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I know, um, in my own way, um, having started a church, um, how um, challenging it is, um, how anxiety-inducing it can be. Um, and I know that those early days for you were really hard. It wasn't just kind of some of those early rejections, although that's not, never, that never feels good. Um, uh, uh, but um, just kind of the overwhelmingness of so many aspects of both the need that you saw and the kind of perhaps apathy that you experienced in some of the... Um, uh, the folks that you were trying to get on board with you. Yeah. Um, how was City Church part of helping you to kind of get through a lot of those, um, those hard times, frankly? Um, well, you know, it's, um, I experienced this sort of massive disconnect, right, because um, I'd have, um, uh, because we, we all, there's so much sort of latent demand and need for access to justice that uh, we, we basically did no outreach, right? We had a, a sign on the street and with just that sign, we were sort of overwhelmed with requests mm -hmm. for help. Mm -hmm. And every week... Just people walking by. Yeah, people walking by. Wow. Um, and every week, you know, I'd have people come in crying, begging for help after being turned away at, you know, four or five other places. And, um, and so there was this, like, real intense need in the community. But when I talked to funders about it, it's like, didn't matter at all, right? Uh, and it was very discouraging. And, um, and, and actually, our first grant ever came from City Church. And, um, and I remember um, meeting with Paul Trudeau in late 2013. And he's like, oh, you know, Adrian, the elder board has voted to give you a grant. Um, do you feel like the church supports you? And I was like, and I was kind of speechless about it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and... Um, and then, and the congregation also stepped up, and, and that's basically where we got our support. 
Um, and then by sort of 2016, 2017, essentially um, it had become so stressful trying to raise money and trying to run the org that I had, um, uh, that my mental health was, was really poor. And I would, and I essentially couldn't sleep through the night anymore. So I would wake up um, like sort of drenched in sweat five times a night mm. with night terrors. And um, I couldn't afford counseling. Uh, we could barely afford rent. And so um, I talked to one of my friends, Eva Van Horn, and she's like, oh, you know, you really should ask uh, for help. And I felt really guilty about it, but she convinced me to. For help. Uh, from, from the Deacon Fund. Okay. So I was able to get a sort of um, money from the Deacon Fund, access counseling at, um, at the Teachers Counseling Center, and then uh, over a period of about a year and a half, I was able to get better. Mm. And, um, and then lastly, I also got a scholarship to do uh, the New Begin Fellowship, now called Faith and Justice, and, um, and that was really formative for me. And uh, I was so inspired by it, as Emily mentioned, that I did write a sort of, uh, on my own, just like this sort of master's level theology paper, which I distribute to anyone interested. <laughs> um, it's really good. It's pretty good, yeah. <laughs> and I've gotten really good comments from Peter, who read it, and also Fred, and many other people. Mm -hmm. So you, in, in so many ways, it's, mm -hmm. you've kind of um, received uh, a great deal of um, financial support um, in, from different, like, kind of intersections of the church, right? There's kind of probably, like, what would be something like a mission fund um, at that time um, in the, among the elder board, the, the deacons fund um, uh, to access um, the health care that um, is made available through City Church, um, and then this theological or spiritual formation through the Newbegin House. Um, You've kind of like tapped, you know, other than children's ministry, I feel like you've kind of tapped all of the, <laughs> the different corners um, of the church. Uh, and it's not, um, you know, you, like all of that has, has sort of done something in you. You seem okay for the most part now. Um, and, uh, and you're willing to come up here and, and talk about it. Um, so I'm, I'm curious about maybe how all of this, plus your own experience of, of fundraising mm -hmm. for your own organization, like how has that shaped your understanding of financial giving? Well, it's, um, in, it's intensely humbling mm -hmm. to have this sort of extreme awareness that, that, that your livelihood is, um, and even your mental health, is based off the generosity of others, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and it kind of just throws cold water on this side of myth that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps because you kind of realize that the bootstraps are held by someone else, mm. right? Mm. Um, um, and, um, you know, and it's just kind of made me think about how we all inhabit this one community and that the money we, we make and the money we spend sort of just circulates. And, uh, and we get to choose how it circulates based off our values. Um, one thing that I found sort of really interesting um, uh, over the last 10 years is, is how difficult it's been to sort of convince um, our secular brothers and sisters in the city to support the work of Access to Justice. Um, and, um, you know, I think we've been turned down by, by basically every major foundation in the Bay Area. Uh, we don't get support. 
Um, we don't get major support from law firms, and I think with two exceptions, we haven't gotten support from tech companies, right? Um, and I was reading a study about how, on average in the Bay Area, you know, your sort of average Christian is giving 10 times more um, uh, as a percentage of income than, than your average non-Christian. Hmm. And that the, the sort of destinations of where they're giving is also very different, right? So uh, mostly non-Christians are giving to their alma mater, they're giving to their private schools, they're giving to the opera, and they're giving to museums. And they're, they're giving very little to meet the human needs of our neighbors. Mm. Um, so that's also been very interesting, very formative for me. I, one of the things that I thought was really interesting um, as you were kind of sharing some of this information with me um, another time was that, um, that, that, that even Christians across, people who identify as Christians, and maybe even not just Christians, I would imagine, um, uh, who have very different like social opinions about all kinds of things or political um, stances, uh, uh, all kind of are putting their, their finances in the same direction, even if, even if it's, you know, um, they wouldn't necessarily be acknowledging each other's uh, uh, legitimacy. As well. Oh yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, we, we get support now from very um, theologically conservative churches, um, very um, people who, who was, would sort of describe themselves as conservative. And, and I've kind of found that they're more like attuned and interested in the work we're doing than even people who would sort of describe themselves as, as per, like a secular progressive. Mm -hmm. And so like, it's so important to support, you know, various services. Um, it's also important to do the broader justice work that create the conditions that create the circumstances that lead people to need that kind of legal access. But you know, you gotta start somewhere. <laughs> um, uh, but so, the, it's important to do that, but also like, you know, that's a different kind of situation or a different kind of context than giving to a church, right? Um, you're, you're, there are different sort of frameworks, similar, but different kind of um, purposes, I think, um, to some extent. And so I'm curious about how, like, how your financial giving at City Church is, like, how you understand it to be different or distinct from other organizations that you might donate to. Well, um... You know, I think that uh, there's very little I can do or ODL can do to change people's social values, right? If they don't believe that access to justice is important, um, they're not even gonna like wanna talk to me. Um, and I've been in, in many rooms where I've given talks about the cases we've done and the clients we've helped and people have just come up to me and be like, I just refuse to believe it, right? Refuse to believe it. Um, so, you know, in a sense, I think the church is really the only institution that is um, sort of interested and capable of changing social values, mm. you know, because there's a message that we hear consistently about how, you know, your purpose and your worth is greater than yourself and how that we are all responsible for each other. Mm. And, you know, my experience in the data has kind of shown that this uh, actually has an impact and if you think about kind of all of the ministries the church has spawned over the years in San Francisco, like Episcopal Community Services, Glide Memorial, St. Anthony's, Catholic Charities, essentially all of the city's largest anti-poverty institutions, right? I mean, how much worse would the city be uh, without those institutions um, that were all started by the church? And they were started by 
people or collections of people who who were formed, kind of spiritually formed, mm -hmm. that then, you know, in in the spirits' work in their own lives, sort of moved them um, to step out in ways um, that were probably not, if not similar to yours, um, at, risked something, right? Mm -hmm. To to um, to to bring it into uh, into existence and. You know, so I think that there's something really interesting that you're saying about like we can't do this other piece until this other this the foundation that Jesus laid right yeah. um, isn't um, is is late uh, isn't there like if that's not there then then we can't build on top of it um, and do something and and so there's this kind of preparatory work that's happening spiritually in, in shaping people's um, uh, hearts and minds and, and imaginations about what should be. Yeah, and I would say, you know, the output of the church is essentially a changed world. Mm. And, um, and because of that, um, you, you can't even expect to see it in your own lifetime, right? Mm. So um, in, a, in a sense, giving to the church is also an act of faith. Um, it's, about, um, it's about the world that you hope to see um, but, but may never get to. Mm. At least in, in our lifetime, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I love that. Like giving to the church is is essentially kind of giving or um, uh, contributing to a world that we might not see, but we trust and believe um, could come about. In some ways, when every time we come to this table, we're sort of reminding those ancestors of the faith that, like, no, you know, we're getting a little closer, hopefully, right, <laughs> um, uh, to to this this thing that you were contributing toward. Um, and I think one thing about that is that, like, buried inside of that that phrase, right, giving to the church is giving to the world that you want to see, there's an important detail embedded in that. Giving to the church helps you become more fully part of bringing about the world that God longs for, right? So it's not just um, uh, giving to bring the world about, but it actually, the act of giving does something inside of you that maybe stirs you and prompts you to begin to think about how am I how am I going to actively be a part of making that happen? So we're in this second week of our series, um, Joshua mentioned earlier, exploring you know, some of the ingredients of what, what it takes to form a community, and particularly a church community. Last week we talked about time, um, and today we're talking about treasure. And on, on the one hand, fi financial giving is, is deeply practical, right? We couldn't rent <clears throat> this space or pay for this microphone that I'm using um, or afford the salary that it takes to make it possible for me to stand um, before you um, without money. It takes money to pay for things and for the dedicated time that people are giving um, to carry out the various ministries and activities of our church. And we unpacked this in more detail last week at our congregational meeting. And so um, if you were with us, then you would have heard it. If you um, weren't with us, it is recorded and you can um, find it on our, our YouTube channel um, to be able to sort of see what that has, how that has sort of been divvied up and, and, um, and allocated to, to support our ministries. Um, money, so money is necessary, right? Like that's a fact. But as Christians, when we give financially, it's about so much more than paying the bills, right? It's also about transforming our faith, transforming our lives, and equipping and empowering each other to do things that maybe even we couldn't imagine for ourselves um, or imagine for each other. Right? That's, that's the message of the gospel, that the person you are today does not have to be the person you are tomorrow. That what you think you're capable of today is not all of what is possible within you and through you. And so there are a few things that we are doing when we, um, when we give. First, 
we are remembering the source of all things. We remember that when we give, we are actually making a statement, a declaration, which says that everything I have comes from God, that God is the source of all that I have, and it all belongs to God. This disrupts narratives that tempt us to believe that it is by our own power, right, that we have what we have. The truth is that we could be just as smart or clever or hardworking as the next person and get nothing. And I'm sure you experienced that at various times when you were trying to plant, uh, sorry, um, start um, ODL, that like, man, I'm really, I'm pretty smart and I'm working really hard and it feels like all I'm getting are no's and rejections every other place, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not always just, you know, that, that, that I'm smarter, clever, or even lucky. It's, it's, it's this kind of recognition that everything I have is made possible by God. Many of our neighbors, in fact, who are working in tech, um, especially might be feeling this right now, right? Um, feeling a little bit of job insecurity or, or maybe um, the recipients of some really hard news. We don't always get to control our economic circumstances, but we can choose how much it controls us. We don't get to control our circumstances, but we do get to control how much it controls us, right? We can choose how much it controls us. Um, and, and just as importantly, how we will respond to our circumstances, which brings me to my next point, that as Christians, we are to give out of a deep sense of gratitude for what we've received. In his second letter to the Corinthian church, <clears throat> Paul tells, uh, tells the congregation that God loves a cheerful giver. Now, last week, actually, Hillary mentioned to me that the Greek root for her name is not only the same as for the word hilarious, um, uh, it's also the same root that, that Paul uses um, for the word cheerful. So, uh, God loves a hilarious giver, um, which means you must always submit a joke with your check or your recurring gift in order to make your contribution complete. But the point is that how we give matters as much as what we give. What we give matters for the practical needs, but how we give matters for our souls. What we give matters for the practical needs, but how we give matters for our souls. Giving from a place of resentment or control cultivates a spirit of coercion and scarcity. Giving out of gratitude ensures that our soul is centered on a trust in God's purposes that are rooted in an abundant worldview. And then finally, um, the third thing we do when we give is we put wealth in its place. When we give from an understanding that the ultimate power in our lives is God, it fundamentally shifts our relationship to money. All the messages around us teach that money is a tool for power, control, and authority. And so when we give it away, it disrupts our economic systems of exploitation and levers of oppression. We're supposed to give something to get something. But when we give something for something we may never get, right, that we may never see in our lifetime, it disrupts the coercive and controlling use of money in our economic systems. And it releases the valve of oppression that that contributes to. When we give our money freely, it uproots and subverts all of those messages and the ways in which they can so easily lead us toward idolatry. In short, giving is good for your soul. But don't take it from me. 
To use a term I learned from a Gen Z quiz, slang quiz I took with our youth leaders, that would be sus. <laughs> I was asked to include at least one of these terms in a sermon. So don't take it from me. Take it from Adrian's story, right? And not just from his story, because his is one of many, right? I could have just as easily had Paul Trudeau up here talking about um, his journey uh, of of bringing about City Church. I could have had Jay up here talking about how the Counseling Center got started. I could have had Peter up here talking about how Faith and Justice um, was formed, and so many others in this space online and who are no longer part of this worshiping community right now um, whose lives have been changed for the better because of our collective effort and contribution. This builds something that is so much greater than any one of us could do on our own. Paul can plant a seed, and Apollo, Apollos can pour out some water, but the mystery of the husk cracking open and the roots pouring out, that's all God. And the power of that transformation isn't just about what it does around us or even through us, it's also about what it does within us. God's economy is so efficient. Nothing is wasted. We activate that mystery, sometimes in spite of ourselves, right? But always for the glory of the, of the power of God amidst, in, um, in, in the midst of it all to bring about something that none of us could have imagined on our own. Even Fred, when he planted so long ago and all the folks who journeyed alongside with him, in spite of him and them and because of him and them, God did something that was able to make an impact on at least 3,000 families a year. And that's just one story. When we give, we get to be a part of something so much more than any one of us could have imagined. And for that, I say thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we are grateful for the gift of your multipli multiplicative um, capacity. That what we do um, in this community creates a ripple effect far beyond what we could do on our own. And that even in the midst of our differences with different communities and even one another, that you can use all of those efforts, all of those contributions for your purposes. And so we ask that you would move within us as we consider what kind of faithful financial commitment you are calling us to make in this community, um, but also helping us to understand that that helps to do something greater than any one of us could do. We thank you for Adrian's story. We thank you for all of the stories that are in this space, some of which we will get to hear along the way and some of which may just be held um, in the hearts and minds of those who carry them. We are grateful that we um, get to be recipients of your grace, activators of your grace, and conduits of your grace for those around us. We pray all of this with gratitude and in Jesus' name. Amen.